Matthew 27, verses 11 to 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your grace this morning as we study this passage. Father, teach us that which, oh, Father, you desire for us to learn from this this morning. Make us, oh, Father. Make us more like your son, Jesus, through this text. In his precious name, we pray. Amen and amen. When we uh, look at the news, when we look around at all of the things that are taking place in this world, we look at the content of popular TV shows today, when we look at the work etiquette of the American workplace, when we look at the uh, general direction that our culture has come to, it's uh, pretty commonplace for us, and I'm sure we've all said this more than once, it's pretty commonplace for us to simply ask, what is, this, what is wrong with this world? <laughs> yeah. And um, that's a much easier question to ask than the question we perhaps should be asking, which is uh, also the title of this morning's message. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? 
Because it's really easy to look out the window and say, hey, look over there, that's, what's up with that guy? What's up with these people over here? How can these people do this? How can these people do that? How can this guy do this over here? How can these people do this stuff? That's really easy to do. Because it's always looking away from us, isn't it? When we come to texts like we've come to this morning, it's really easy to approach the text in the same way. Where we can say, what in the world is up with these religious leaders? And Pilate, what is he thinking? And the crowds, how could they choose Barabbas over Jesus? How could they do such a thing? You know, Pilate, the crowds, the religious leaders, as we're going to see in a few minutes, they teach us a lot about ourselves. They teach us a lot about ourselves. Now to see this, our starting point needs to be Jesus. Who is Jesus? Verse 11 tells us, now Jesus stood before the governor. Have you ever felt the impact of that statement? Jesus stood before the governor. He is standing in the dock before Pilate. That is what's going on here. Who is Jesus? Hebrews 1 tells us that he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 and 1.19 offer us these, these words considering uh, concerning Jesus. In verse 15, we read these words. Well, let me get to Colossians. We read these words that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 19, we read, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we think of uh, John chapter 14, where Jesus is preparing His disciples for His departure. And uh, he says to them, I'm the way. And they say, well, how can we know the way? You know the discourse that I'm talking about. They say, I'm the way to the Father. And they ask, well, show us the Father. Philip asks, show us the Father, O Lord. And Jesus says to Philip, and in saying this to Philip, he says it to all his disciples, and in saying it to all his disciples, he's saying it to us. He says, Philip, you've been with me so long, and you don't know, you don't understand. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. Who is it that's standing before Pilate? God in the flesh. And that's what we read about this morning. In fact, in our text... If we bring in the context of Matthew 26, which we need to do, we always need to be mindful of the context when we're studying the Bible. If we bring in the context of Matthew 26, we're, I'm going to show that, that Jesus actually stands before four judges. Before four judges. First, the religious leaders, right? On the night that he's apprehended, where is he taken? He's taken to Annas, former high priest and father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was then the high priest. After a brief stint with Annas, he's taken to Caiaphas. Caiaphas has a gathering there. Jesus is under trial. And what are the charges? <laughs> Anything they can come up with. Now, whatever they can come up with. 
All of this false testimony is brought forward. They, they've rounded up a bunch of scoundrels who are willing to say whatever they could, but they can't get their story straight. Finally, Caiaphas, he says to Jesus, placing him under oath, tell me, are you the Christ or not? What's Jesus say? We looked at those texts. He affirms that he is. Pilate hypocritically tears his robe. We've got, you know, we don't need to hear any more. Jesus is charged with blasphemy. And then, then he's brought to the second judge, Pilate. Who is Pilate? A lot could be said, but uh, we know that Pilate was governor of the region from the years 26 A.D. to about 36 A.D., about 10 years. And he's often pitched as a, a political buffoon, but I, I'm not sure that's really accurate. He did hold that position for 10 years. It's the second longest tenure of anyone who held that position. I don't think he could have been the political buffoon that he is sometimes labeled as. But he did commit a number of things that provoked the Jews. We know that early on in his, in his administration, he ordered one of his auxiliary battalions to go into Jerusalem, and they carried into Jerusalem images of the emperor, and this outraged the Jews because of texts like Exodus 20 and verse 4, we're not to have any graven image. When Pilate realized that this isn't going to blow over, that these folks are, seem like they're going to, they would rather die than leave those images in Jerusalem, he finally relents and has them pulled out. Luke 13 indicates that um, Pilate had committed some kind of atrocity, mixing the blood of the Gentiles with the offering, and all that's a story for another day. Uh, but we know of another instance where Pilate decided to do, dedicate a number of golden shields to Tiberius. And this time, I, I, he doesn't put this, uh, the, the, uh, the graven image, if you will, on the shields, just simply the name to Tiberius. And this outraged the Jews to the point that they sent uh, word off to Tiberius, who was the emperor at the time, and Tiberius reprimanded Pilate pretty severely uh, for that. And we have good reason to believe that that event took place sometime near the time Jesus goes on trial. So Pilate has already received a pretty sharp reprimand from Tiberius for provoking the Jews. And that is in the background here as Pilate uh, has Jesus before him. Now, when we're studying these events, we need to be mindful that, no, uh, that, that neither Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John give us the full account of uh, these events, of the arrest, of re really any of these events concerning uh, Jesus' passion. And for that reason, it's often, uh, often we'll, we'll, we'll harmonize the events. Some of you might be familiar with some of the harmonies of the gospel. Uh, Calvin wrote one, his con commentary was a, a harmony of the gospel accounts. Uh, all week this week, I had on my desk uh, four sheets of paper. And there was uh, Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, John's account right before me so that I could easily compare these accounts together. And when you do that, you discover that John has more to say about Jesus being before Pilate than the other gospel writers. And in fact, uh, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to, uh, to John 18, it's page 904, 
if you're using the church's Bible. And um, keep your place in Matthew 27. Put your bulletin in there, whatever you need to do, keep your place. So we're going to flip around a little bit this morning. We're told in verse 28 that Caiaphas led Jesus from the house, from his, from his house uh, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. And we're told that uh, the chief priests would not enter into the governor's headquarters uh, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Uh, it was uh, Jewish law that a Jew could not enter into the residence or the place of a Gentile or they would be uh, rendered unclean. So they're standing outside and uh, they, somebody notices that they're there. They give word to Pilate. And Pilate comes outside, verse 29. And he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? Notice their, notice their answer in verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? <laughs> Could you imagine that being the, the prosecuting attorney's defense in a court of law? Okay, what, what, is he, what has he done? Well, if he didn't do something, you wouldn't think we'd have him here, do you? <laughs> That's what they say. Remarkable, isn't it? Pilate says to him, verse 31, he says, Well, take him yourself and judge him yourself by your own law. Then the Jews say to him, Well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. I can imagine Pilate pausing. Saying, okay, death. This must be a serious matter. Verse 33, Pilate enters his headquarters again and calls Jesus to him and, and asks, Are you the king of the Jews? And that's exactly where Matthew picks up the story. That's exactly where verse 11 in Matthew's text picks up. Pilate now has Jesus before him. Jesus is in the dock and Pilate asks, Are you king of the Jews? And if you look, keep your, keep your place in John 19. But look back at Matthew 11, and notice how Jesus answers Pilate. Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? At the end of verse 11, Jesus said, you have said so. You have said so. This is an absolutely brilliant response. And let's, to, to, to get this, let's think of the context. It is absolutely brilliant. Jesus, before Caiaphas was silent until Caiaphas put him under oath. And after he put him under oath, he asked him, are you the Christ? Now, Jesus, he, he asked to answer. He's under oath. Before the living God, are you the Christ? And Jesus answers in the affirmative, but he even goes further and appeals to Daniel 7. You know that text where uh, the son of one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and there he, he receives absolute authority and power in an eternal kingdom? That's like throwing gas on a campfire, isn't it? Jesus is confessing to be a king. He's confessing to be the Christ. Okay, in the last courtroom, he confessed to be the Christ. Now he's being asked if he is a king in Pilate's courtroom. And what does he, how does Jesus respond? You have said so. In other words, Pilate, you're the judge. It's up for you to decide. But the brilliance in this is Jesus is kind of in a corner. He's very much in a corner. If he tells Pilate, 
that he is a king, Pilate has only one way to understand that. Pilate's going to think Tiberius, Tiberius, Tiberius. A king like Tiberius, a king like the emperor of Rome. He'll simply see Jesus as an insurrectionist and he'll be misled. But notice, if you keep your hand in Matthew 27 and you go back to John 19, John records some dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. In verse 33, Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, verse 34, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now Jesus is qualifying his kingdom. You see that? In verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate answers with those famous words, What is truth? At this point, Pilate is becoming convinced that Jesus is some kind of ruler. He has no really any way to make a lot of sense of this. But he has, he has some sense that Jesus is a ruler. Pilate really wants out of this. We know this in Luke's account. Uh, Pilate, at, at this point, he sends Jesus off to Herod. He finds out that Jesus is a Galilean. He's from Galilee. Herod's in town. That's his district. And uh, Pilate would like to just have this problem go away. So he sends him off to Herod, hoping that Jesus would become Herod's problem. Well, Herod's also pretty politically astute, and he saw exactly what was going on. He saw what Pilate was up to. And uh-uh, uh-uh, he sends Jesus right back to Pilate. Pilate, this is your problem. I can almost imagine Herod thinking, how are you going to get out of this one? You really have a mess here. So that didn't work. Furthermore, Pilate is hearing these accusations in Luke 20, uh, 23. You don't need to turn there. I'm only going to read one verse for you. Because Luke records the accusations for us. In verse 2, Luke 23, the accusations that the, that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were making against Jesus were these. They say, we found this man misleading our nation forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, Pilate sees right through this. Now, you guys are concerned about tribute to Caesar? We can think, Pilate can think about his career. Every time he's been in trouble, it's because they won't pay tribute to Caesar. Now, all of a sudden, they're concerned about tribute to Caesar. Pilate's on to them. He sees right through them. And verse 18 proves it. For he knew, Matthew 27, verse 18, for he knew that it was out of what? Out of envy that they had delivered him up. The word envy could be just as easily translated rivalry. Now Pilate's becoming more concerned. And verse 19 really raises his concern. In verse 19, Matthew's the only one that records this for us. While 
Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. This would have been haunting to Pilate. This would have been haunting to the ancients because they believed that the gods spoke to them through dreams. And furthermore, Pilate is observing Jesus. If you look back in Matthew 27, up at verses 12 and 13 and 14, these accusations are being hurled against Jesus. They're being hurled against him. And what is Jesus doing? He's giving no answer. This would be really odd for a magistrate like Pilate because this is usually the time when the one in the dock is wildly and vehemently saying, I, don't know, I didn't do it. They're making this all. He's offering some kind of defense. Jesus is just sitting there or standing there. He's quiet, not saying anything. Pilate even says to him, verse 13, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was what? Greatly amazed. At the end of the day, what is his verdict? I find no guilt in him. I don't find any guilt in him. Then Pilate decides he's going to try to, he's going to try to, he really does make attempts to try to get Jesus released. He appeals to what is sometimes called Paschal and Amnesty. Paschal Amnesty. It's this wicked, um, wicked custom that they had that during the Passover feast, which was a feast that was ordained by God. It was a religious worship feast. That at this feast, a prisoner would be released. That at this feast, a, a, a prisoner would, be, uh, would, would just be pardoned at this feast. Uh, a real abuse of worship. We don't know if, if this originated from uh, the Roman side or it originated from the Jewish side. John's gospel seems to indicate it originated from the Jewish side. Perhaps it originated out of both in tandem. Uh, we don't know. But what is the goal? Uh, what's, what's, what's Pilate hoping will happen? Well, he's got this notorious criminal over here. His name's Barabbas. And we'll get Barabbas and uh, we'll get Jesus and um, I'll let the crowds make a choice. It's actually kind of clever. He's going around the leaders. And Pilate had to have been, he had to have been aware of all of the praise and acclamation that Jesus got just a few days ago when he came in in what we call the triumphal entry. After all, weren't the crowds shouting from the top of their lungs, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest? Surely they're going to acquit Jesus and they're going to release Jesus. Then, Pilate, then Jesus goes before the third judge. Who is the third judge? It's the crowds. It's the crowds. Okay, everyone, who do you want me to release for you? Hey, I, I think we can read between the lines. The pilot's thinking, we're going to soon be out of this one. What do the crowds say? Give us Barabbas. Now, we know that they said this. We know that the chief priests, elders, and scribes were very much in cahoots on this. For verse 20 of Matthew 27 tells us that now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. When Jesus is in the dock before the crowd, uh, 
He's not acquitted either, is he? So we see Jesus before the religious institution, Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before the crowds. Who's the fourth judge? Let's call the fourth judge human nature. Fallen human nature. Without the assistance of God's grace, does anyone in the room think that we would have done anything differently than what's been done here? It seems that all humanity is represented here, doesn't it? We have the crowds, the common folks, the religious institution, and the secular authority. None of whom are willing to acquit Jesus. When Jesus is in the dock, in the tribunal of the fallen human heart, he doesn't get acquitted. See, we learn something about ourselves here, don't we? Yeah, the Apostle Paul, he offers us a commentary on what's going on here in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to turn there. I'm going to read a few verses. It might be helpful for you to be reading them with me at page 939. If you're using the church's Bible, Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now listen especially to verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, how is that a commentary on what's taken place in Matthew 26 and 27? The glory of God was right before them. The glory of God was right before these religious leaders. And they exchanged the glory of God for what they were really serving. Their reputations, their status, their positions of authority. The glory of God was right there before Pilate. And Pilate exchanged the glory of God for what? For his career. Man, this, <laughs> I provoke these guys one more time. Tiberius is not going to be very happy about this. I might not be governor no more. He didn't want to be governor of that region anyway. If we were political science majors at that time, none of us would have wanted to have been governor of that region. That was the worst assignment you could get. Pilate had hopes that uh, he would soon be... Uh, uh, 
brought up the ranks, that he would be promoted out of there. That was what his hopes were for. He was about his career. Exchanged the glory of God for his career. And what about the crowds? We're not told how the chief priests and the elders convinced the crowds to say Barabbas, but it really comes down to only two ways they could have influenced them. By threat or by promise, and I guess there's a third way, by both, threat and promise. And it probably was both. Uh, Most likely, uh, they were told that he's a blasphemer. Uh, If you you acquit him, you're no friend of God. That would be a threat. If you ask for Barabbas, here we have a promise. God will be happy with you. He's an insurrectionist. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna ruin the political, the political stability we have here. Take Barabbas. You'll be doing the right thing. Threat and promise. What do the crowds do? They exchange the glory of God for what? These threats and these promises. I think that about covers everything, doesn't it? When we think about the fallen human heart, we've pretty much covered it all, haven't we? What is the judgment of the fallen human heart concerning Christ? The Apostle Paul makes it clear. We've exchanged him. We've exchanged the glory of God. We've exchanged God for something other than God. And the application of this is, listen, when we're doing evangelism, as we spoke of and as we prayed for this morning, you've got to remember, when we are doing evangelism, when we're reaching out to the unbelieving heart, you're reaching out to a person who's exchanged the glory of God for something other than the glory of God. It's criminal. And we may think back in our own lives, uh, some of us who've been converted in ad- adulthood, how were we functioning? We'd exchange the glory of God for something else. We started out with Jesus in this message. Let's conclude with him. What is Jesus doing? He's not saying much, is he? He's not teaching. He's not preaching. What's he doing? Isaiah tells us what he's doing. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, So he opened not his mouth. What is Jesus doing? He's completing that perfect righteousness that he will be offering to fallen humanity. He is surrendered to the will of the Father because of love for the Father and because of love for his people. And he is perfectly obeying the Father. For who? For us. 
He's completing and accomplishing that perfect righteousness, that alien righteousness, that righteousness that's not ours, that's offered to us in the gospel for the taking by faith. That's what Jesus is doing. And he's doing it perfectly so that the gospel can go forth. And so that, so that those of us who have exchanged the glory of God for something else could make a re-exchange. So that this righteousness could be offered, so that grace could be given, so that a new heart could be given, so that a righteousness would be available to clothe us, so that we would never have to pay the penalty for our sins. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. I stumbled across the, uh, an old prayer. I don't know if anybody's familiar with the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers. And just a little bit ago, I stumbled across this one. It's entitled Love, and uh, I want to read it for you. I'll, I'll try to modernize the English as I go. The prayer goes like this. Give me to love you to embrace you. Though I once took lust and sin in my arms, you loved me before I loved you. I was an enemy, a sinner, a loathsome worm. You did own me when I disclaimed myself. You do love me as a son and weep over me as over Jerusalem. Love brought you from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross from the cross to the grave. Love caused you to be weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, and pierced. Love led you to bow your head in death. My salvation is the point where perfect created love and the most perfect uncreated love meet together. For you do welcome me, not like Joseph and his brothers, loving and sorrowing, but loving and rejoicing. This love is not intermittent, it's not cold, it's not changeable, and it does not cease or abate for all my enmity. Holiness is a spark from your love, kindled to a flame in my heart by the Spirit, and so it ever turns to the place from which it comes." Let me see your love everywhere, not only in the cross, but in the fellowship of believers and in the world around me. When I feel the warmth of the sun, may I praise you who are the sun, capital S, of righteousness with healing power. When I feel the tender rain, may I think of the gospel showers that water my soul. When I walk by the riverside, may I praise you for that stream that makes the eternal city glad and washes white my robes that I may have the right to the tree of life. Your infinite love is a mystery of mysteries and my eternal rest lies in the eternal enjoyment of it. Oh, what love is this? What is wrong with us? We've all exchanged the glory of God for something else. What is the cure? It's Jesus who gives us the ability to re-exchange. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O oh Lord, for this love that's unspeakable. For Father, we have forsaken you, each of us. All have turned away. Like sheep, we've gone astray. O oh Father, 
You've brought forth a Savior for us. You've brought forth a cure for humanity's problem, for humanity's predicament. What is wrong with us? We've exchanged you for something else. What is the cure, Jesus? For He is the only cure. Work that cure into our hearts, O Father, we pray. Work Him into our hearts afresh this morning, O Father. If there's any of us who have yet to choose Jesus, who are still choosing Barabbas, O Father, we pray that, Lord, You'd be pleased to give us the right choice this morning. We would choose life in Christ Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.